If you could turn to the next page in your bulletin, uh, which, which, uh, where you'll find the preaching text. It comes um, from John 16, and I'll read for you. Starting in verse 19. Jesus knew that the disciples wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this, why, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is the word of God. And so uh, we've been going through uh, Jesus' farewell discourse, right? And in fact, this is going to be the last message in this series. And uh, at last, we've come to Jesus' final teaching. And what does he tell his disciples? You know, this is the last time he is to be with them. And so what are the words that he shares with them? He speaks to them about joy. And that's remarkable because remember, this is Jesus' final night, the night that he is to be betrayed. And in just a few short hours, he is to be crucified, a torturous death. And so what does he say to his disciples? He speaks to them about joy. And so what is this joy that Jesus speaks of? And we're going to look at this in our text, and we see three things. And so here's my outline. Number one, we see the reality of Christian joy. Number two, we see the nature of that joy. And then number three, we see uh, Christ speaking of his own joy. Okay, so number one, the reality. Number two, the nature. And then number three, Christ's own joy. All right, so let's begin. Number one, the reality of the joy. And Jesus begins his teaching by giving a little riddle. And you can see the riddle there at the end of verse 19. And Jesus says, in a little while you will not see me, and then in a little while you will see me. And of course, almost as always, the disciples are puzzled. You know, what is Jesus saying? You know, maybe they get the first part when he says, a little while you will not see me, because Jesus has been speaking of his departure now through the whole night. But what about that second part? In a little while you will see me. And the answer is that Jesus is talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. And where do we see that? Well, in the first part, Jesus says, In a little while, you will not see me. And then in verse 20, he says, You will weep and lament. And when you combine those two words in the Bible, it's not talking about some sort of general unhappiness or sadness, but it's always speaking about the emotions that go on at a funeral. And so Jesus is speaking about his departure, that he's speaking about his death on the cross, okay? And then now the second part, Jesus says, in a little, and then in a little while you will see me. And here the disciples have no idea what Jesus is talking about, because how is it possible to see someone after they are dead, <laughs> right? In the ancient world, people just didn't have a conception of this. And Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy. And so, What is he saying? But we know, right? Because we're looking at this from the vantage point of history. Jesus is talking about his resurrection when he will rise from the dead. Now, what is 
Why is this important? You know, what does this have to do with this? What does this have to say about joy? Very simple. Listen carefully. Jesus says, notice, when Jesus says they will have the joy. At the resurrection. It's not some far off distant event. You know, Jesus is not talking about his second coming. He's not saying, disciples, you will have joy at the end of history, at the end of time. But that joy, Jesus is speaking of to his disciples and to us, that joy is for the here and now. It's a present reality. It's not reserved for heaven, but it's for today. It's, for, it's a present reality. Okay, so that's the first thing Jesus says about the reality of joy. The second thing he says is that joy is inevitable. In verse 20, Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus doesn't say, it may turn into joy. He doesn't say it's possible that you will have joy, but that you will have joy. It is inevitable. You cannot stop it. And then by way of illustration, Jesus gives this story of a woman in labor. Now, that's something I can say that I know something about. Uh, Almost all of you know, right, that Christina and I recently had our baby. And that was a memorable night. Uh, uh, Christina gave birth at 3.30 in the morning. And I remember really in vivid technicolor detail just the whole event, the whole night. And uh, uh, this one moment of kind of comedy, uh, 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 it was kind of funny. Christina was, you know, going through the labor pains and, you know, she was in anguish. She was, you know, in a lot of pain. And then Christina turns to the nurse and then she says to the nurse, do you think we can stop? Uh, can we take a break? You know, she was saying, it's so intense, it's so painful, I, I need a time out. Can we just like take a breather a few hours and then we'll come back to this? And the nurse kind of looked astonished and she said to Christina, I'm sorry, but you can't stop. The baby is coming. And every mother knows, right, that when the baby decides to come, the baby is coming. You can't stop it. And in the same way, Jesus says, the joy is inevitable. You cannot stop this joy. It is for now. And then the third thing Jesus says is that joy is universal. Notice that Jesus doesn't qualify who will have that joy. He doesn't say only a certain personality type, right? Only those Christians who are sunny and optimistic will have joy. He doesn't say... Only those with a charmed life will have joy, right? Because let's be honest. So so many of us have had a very hard life, right? We've tasted the bitterness and the griefs of this life. But Jesus says it doesn't matter because joy in the Christian life is not optional. No matter what your temperament, no matter what your station life, you will have joy. And so Jesus is telling us right, that joy is a present reality, joy is an inevitable reality, and that joy is for everyone. It's universal for if you are a believer. And that the Christian life is marked by this supernatural, pervasive, overwhelming joy. And if you read through the New Testament, you see this in virtually every page. Let me show you uh, just one verse. 1 Peter 1.8. The apostle says to the church, You believed in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
Or what about the Christmas story? Do you guys remember in Luke chapter 2, the angel comes to the shepherds, and what does he say to them in announcing the birth of Christ? He says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And if you read through the book of Acts, every time the apostles go to a city and they proclaim the good news, it says the people received it with great joy. And there was great joy in the city. And so joy is pervasive. It's universal Christian experience. Now let's apply this. Do you have this joy? Do you know this joy? And I'm not talking about, you know, a kind of giddy ha-ha happiness where it's kind of like the smiley Christian syndrome, you know, where no matter what happens, you know, no matter how terrible things are, they're just saying, everything's great, praise the Lord. You know, I'm not talking about that kind of superficial, facile happiness that's really oblivious to what's going on, but I'm talking about a deep foundation of joy, a deep reservoir of joy, so that even in the midst of your sorrows, there's joy. And if you honestly examine your life and you cannot find that joy, and I'm, say, I'm not saying that joy has to be there all the time, but you say, I, I don't know this joy, then you need to really ask yourself, do you believe the gospel? Because when you believe the gospel, you will have joy. The gospel produces joy. All right, so that's the first part, the reality of the joy. And then the second thing is the nature of joy. And Jesus here tells us that joy is intermixed, intermingled with sorrow. That it's not a joy because there's an absence of pain and grief, as if it's some sort of holiday at the resort, you know, where all your needs are pampered and all, you know, you're just taking care of all day long. No, it's a joy that coexists with pain and suffering. It's a joy in the midst of tears and sorrows. Think again of the story of the woman in labor. Everyone knows, right, that when a woman is giving birth, she is in agony. And isn't it remarkable that when Jesus speaks of this joy, he uses as an example what is universally recognized as the most painful human experience possible. And in, the, in that context, in the very bowels and in the very guts of that, Jesus speaks of Joy. So this is by no means a denial of pain. And then the baby arrives. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says that the woman no longer remembers her anguish. What does that mean? You know, notice that Jesus doesn't say that the pain disappears. Because that would be absolutely false. You know, when uh, I remember when they placed little baby Judah in Christina's arms and, you know, she just fell in love with our baby and she was making, like, kissy faces and cooing with the baby, right? The whole time... Christina was still groaning because she was in incredible pain. And I remember, because I guess she was kind of in shock, she kept saying, ouch, 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 it still hurts, it still hurts, as she was like cuddling with her little baby. And so the pain is still there, okay, in the midst of the joy. But Jesus says she no longer remembers her anguish. What does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, once the baby is born, the woman all of a sudden has amnesia, and she's like, what just happened? I don't know. Right? I don't remember the labor pains. That's not what Jesus means. The Bible says that when God forgives us, he no longer remembers our sins. Does that mean that God forgives you and he's like, now I forgive you, but what was it that you did again? I can't for the life of me remember. It must have been bad, but I don't know. No, of course not. God remembers. God knows 
But when it says God does not remember your sins, it means that he no longer holds your sins against you. It means that the sins no longer dictate your relationship to him. It no longer dominates. And so when the woman no longer remembers her pain, it means that the pain is no longer at the forefront. It no longer controls her. But that something greater has taken hold. And the Apostle Paul expresses that, this exact same sentiment in Romans 8.18, and he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I mean, think, think again of, of the story of the woman in labor. You know, as she's holding her newborn baby, she's still in incredible agony, right? But now a deeper and greater joy has taken hold in her life. And as she is just reveling in the joy of her newborn baby, she thinks back to what, she's, what she has gone through and it pales in comparison. You know, it's inconsequential, it's insignificant in comparison now to her newborn baby. So the joy and sorrow coexist. And that by itself is amazing. But Jesus is saying something far deeper than that, far more profound. And what he is saying is that not only does sorrow and joy coexist, listen, but he's saying that the sorrow produces the joy. That the sorrow enhances the joy. That the sorrow becomes a part of the joy itself. Think again about the story of the woman in labor. I remember as Christina was holding, you know, baby Judah, and, uh, you know, it was like the greatest moment for us. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I remember little Judah just lying in her arms, and he opened his beady little eyes, and we were the very first people that he could see. You know, the very first people he saw were his parents. And it was just an incredible, exhilarating moment. But it was not joyful, despite the fact that she had just endured the labor pains. What I'm about to say I know is going to sound really strange and, and really mysterious, but listen to me. It was not a joy despite the labor pains, but the fact that she had gone through that experience, that we had gone through it together, somehow enhanced the joy. Do you know what I'm saying? It made the joy so much greater and deeper and richer for having, Christina, having gone through it all. Let me give you another example. Okay? Um, one of my favorite movie trilogies is Lord of the Rings. And uh, the second movie is called The Two Towers. And if you've seen the movies, you know that The Two Towers is really the darkest uh, and really the, 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 the lowest moment, the lowest movie of the three, right? Because everything seems to go wrong. Everything seems to be falling apart. And the movie focuses on Frodo and Sam. And you know that Frodo and Sam have been tasked with almost an impossible mission. They're to go deep into the heart of enemy territory to destroy the One Ring of Power. And everything, they're experiencing setback after setback. And near the end of the movie, they're captured. Do you remember this? They're captured by uh, Faramir at Osgiliath, right? And if, you know, if you've seen the movie, right, Osgiliath is that border town between Gondor and Mordor. And, uh, and not only are they captured, right? So the mission seems to have failed. They're captured. But not only that, the evil forces of Mordor attack. And the Nazgul come. And you remember that they're like these witch kings and they're riding on dragons. And one of them corners Frodo and he's about to kill Frodo. And by some miraculous feat, somehow Frodo slips away and somehow he escapes. But at enormous emotional cost, 
and, and Frodo turns to Sam. And do you remember what Frodo says? He says, Sam, I can't go on. I can't keep doing this. This is too much. I can't take it anymore. And Sam gives Frodo this speech. And it's really the, my favorite moment in all three movies. And it's really kind of the emotional high point. And I want to read to you from the quote from the movie. Um, and so Frodo says to Sam, I can't do this, Sam. And this is what Sam says. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Do you know what Sam is saying to his friend Frodo? He's saying that if you look at all the great stories, the stories that pluck your heartstrings, you know, the story that resonates with your soul, it's always the case that all seems lost, that the forces of evil and darkness are about to triumph, but then, through an incredible journey of trial and sacrifice, evil is defeated, and goodness and beauty is restored. And then there's this tremendous celebration, right? There's, there's, there's this incredible happy victory at the end, and the victory is all the greater for the darkness and the evils and the trials for the people having to gone, go through it. Do you see? And the gospel is not just one more of those stories. The gospel is the story. It's the story that all the other stories points to because it's true. The gospel is the story that the world was plunged into darkness and sin because of the rebellion of humanity. And then God entered into the human story and God became man in Jesus Christ to be our rescuer, to love us, to be our king. But what did we do? We rejected the Messiah and we crucified him. And that is really the darkest moment in human history when we dare to do the dastardly act of crucifying the Messiah. But the amazing thing about the gospel story is that God took the very greatest rebellious sinful act on our part and he turned it into the very means by which he saves us and rescues us and loves us. And when Jesus rose from the dead three days later, he defeated sin and death and rescued us forever. And our Christian joy follows that pattern so that it's not a denial of sin and suffering, but that somehow in the great mystery of God, God takes our tears and he takes our hardships and our, all our rejections and he weaves it into the very tapestry of joy itself. Do you understand? And this is why Jesus says, no one can take your joy from you. How can Jesus say this? Is Jesus promising us that when we believe in him, we will never experience suffering? No. What Jesus is saying is that your sufferings will never be meaningless. It will never be pointless. You know, compare this with the world's joy. The world's joy 
is based on your circumstances, right? And because of that, the world's joy is so fragile. Do you know? It's so tenuous because anything can take it away. Bankruptcy, divorce, illness, death. But Christian joy cannot be taken away because it's not based on circumstances. It's based on Christ. And Christ said, I will be with you even to the ends of the earth. So that's the second point, the nature of the joy. And let me conclude by speaking of the third point, which is the joy of Christ. Now, here's the question. This joy, it sounds so wonderful. How can we have it? How can we cultivate the joy in our lives? And the answer lies in the story. The key is in the story itself. And Jesus gives us a crucial detail about this woman. Who is this woman in labor? In verse 21, Jesus says, She has sorrow because her hour has come. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that the word hour has a very specific, almost a technical meaning. Right? Do you remember Jesus' first miracle at the wedding at Cana? The wine has run out of the wedding party, and Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, Jesus, you have to do something. And what does Jesus say? He says, my hour has not come. Do you remember in John chapter 12, Jesus is at Bethany, and he's contemplating his death. And what does he say? This, and I'm, I'm going to quote it from you. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. What is this hour that Jesus speaks of? And it was the sixth hour. And the Roman soldiers took Jesus and they crucified him. And darkness was over the land. You see, Jesus is telling us and he's telling his disciples that he is the woman in labor. And Jesus is telling us, you see, that the only way a mother can give life and joy to her little baby is that she has to have her joy taken away, right? She has to forfeit her joy. And so Jesus is saying, my death on the cross was my hour. And what did Jesus get? What was that for? Why did he endure the cross? Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross despising his shame. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, he treasured in his heart and in his mind a joy. He had a joy in his heart. And he knew that he would get that joy. And what was that joy? What was the thing that he didn't have? Us. His joy was to have us. Jesus went through the labor pains of the cross in order to give birth to us. And that's the key. That's the gospel. So that when you see Jesus enduring the cross, putting his joy in you, what's going to happen? How are you going to respond? You're going to want to put your joy in him. And when you do that, a wellspring of joy will overflow in your life and in your heart. I want to close with you, I'll close by reading um, a verse from the Old Testament, and it's one of my favorite verses. Uh, and it comes from Zephaniah 3.17, and I want to read it for you. Listen carefully, okay? I love it because it's you know, just so poetic and it, it evokes such a powerful image. Zephaniah says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He, listen, he will rejoice over you with gladness. 
He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I want to tell you something. For the longest time, I loved this verse, but only recently did it dawn on me, I think I understand what this verse is actually saying. And it dawned on me just this past week as I was thinking about this, uh, this passage. Every night, Christina and baby Judah have, have a little routine. And, you know, Judah, as nighttime approaches, he gets extremely fussy. And he starts to cry and whine. And just, you know, he's generally miserable. I don't know, maybe he's lonely. And every night, Christina picks Judah up and she nestles him close to her and she quiets her with, his lo- with her love. You know, she pats his back until at last he's calm. And then she sings him a little lullaby. And there's Judah, and, I, and I've seen this, there's Judah you know, laying in her arms, listening to his mom sing to him, and he's just blissed out. You know? And his eyelids get droopy and heavy, and all the tense muscles in his body relax, and he slips off into sleep. And that happens every night. And what this verse is telling us, and what the gospel is telling us, is that we are these helpless little babes. And we're lost, and we're isolated because of our sin and rebellion, but then God picks us up, He quiets us, He loves us, He sings over us, because he, we are His joy, we are His treasure. He endured the labor pains of the cross in order to give birth to us. And that's the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this promise of joy. And Lord, we know that uh, the fullness and the, and, the, and the full blossoming of this joy is yet to come in heaven, in the new creation. But we know that we have this joy in the here and now. And we pray, Lord that as we meditate on the gospel, as we look at how you put your joy in us, how you, you endured the labor pains of the cross for us, we would love you back. May it be so. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.